0: Welcome to True Black TV's weekly podcast, where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. This week, we're proud to introduce Jonathan Segrist, one of America's most prolific rock climbers. Jonathan has climbed nearly 105 teams, including Lucifer, Kryptonite, Necessary Evil, Pure Imagination, New World Order, and Bad Girls Club. And he has recently joined the 515 Club by climbing Biography and low Rambo. Jonathan Segrist, welcome to our show.
1: I'm in Colorado right now, and it feels like September.
0: <laughs>
1: it's so warm here still. It's like 70 degrees and really sunny, and we haven't had nice and below freezing yet or anything. I don't know what it's like in California, but... It, it's the same. It's freeze. almost like a Indian, a never-ending
2: Indian summer.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, and I've looked at the 10-day forecast, and... I mean, I'd be surprised if we have any wintry weather at all, even before December. So
2: it's crazy, Un- unbelievable, and for anyone to yeah. say that there's no uh, global climate change happening is pretty mind-boggling.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's uh, it's heartbreaking to think that that there are people who truly believe that. But well, you know, it's a weird of world which, that we live in.
2: I I know. I know. It's just. It's crazy right now and and since you're the first person who's had this conversation since after the election, I've gotta get your response. What do you think of the outcome?
1: Um, well you know i don't know i've been i've been uh i I think it's really easy to react and I'm a little in general i'm a little um weary of reactions as opposed to like kind of well thought out um interpretations of something you know i i i I was certainly disappointed um but i guess in a sense i'm not totally surprised um i think that what concerns me most is you know i i'm very privileged from a position of i have a uh upper middle class family i'm an only child i'm really well supported by my parents not financially but i mean like energetically and and etc emotionally um and i'm white and i'm male i'm straight (laughs) and so my 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 personal concerns like the way that i feel like this is going to really affect me personally uh is mostly from the perspective of environment because that's something that i interact with constantly and and it really worries me how it may change um the way that I have access to a clean and undisturbed environment. Uh, But, you know, from the perspective of my peers and my loved ones who don't have the same privilege as me, I I would be, I'm really concerned for them, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out, like, the best way to kind of support people in my community that might not have the same um, opportunities and privilege that I do. But, you know, aside from that, I think that, um it's really just uh it's just a reflection of of the way you know people feel have there's a lot of people in this country who feel like they have been uh i guess they feel quite angry with the way that things have been and um i don't i don't totally understand their sentiments but that's i guess what it's the part of the Part of what's important, in my opinion, is trying to understand what would drive people to vote for someone like Donald Trump, um, not just reacting and being pissed and and um, you know being upset with the outcome, but more like what what is it that brought us to this point, I guess, and, and what, how can we move forward? Yeah, <clears throat> how, how do your friends feel about it? Um, you know, I. I'm surrounded with a very educated group of people, um, and, you know, generally speaking, my friends are are all um, quite liberal, um, but, you know, it's been interesting to see the reaction. I certainly had many friends. I was uh, very, uh, I've never been, I've never donated to any political person or political party before financially. But um, I donated to Bernie Sanders, and I was I was following him pretty adamantly. I went to a couple of his events, and I think that I had many other friends who felt pretty similarly. Um, I'm 31 years old, so I'm technically a millennial, barely. But I think that a, a big portion of my friends in my community was pretty excited about Bernie. He's the first politician who, I, uh, despite some of the things that he had spoke about, I agreed with almost everything that he said. I, I didn't mm-hmm. necessarily believe that those things could be executed in office, especially in the in the um in the state that Washington's in now. But that being said, it was like everything he said I was like, Hell yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't felt that way about a politician in my entire life. I really mm-hmm. love Barack Obama. But, I, I mean, there's certainly many things that he did in office and, and that he spoke about during his campaign that I didn't agree with. But, I mean, you know, so I think a lot of my friends felt quite alienated when when Bernie was not nominated by the DNC and, and through that, that process. And I think that a lot of them did not cast votes. And, and when I say a lot of them, I mean maybe, I don't know, a quarter, max, maybe 10%. I think that's kind of unfortunate. Um, But also, I guess, you know, I understand it's hard to cast a vote for someone who you don't entirely stand behind. And when you always feel like you're just choosing between, uh, you know, the lesser of two evils and and people who are generally speaking, um, you know, if you really wanted change, I think that uh it would have been hard to see it with with Hillary um but that being said you know i i certainly voted for Hillary and and i was upset when she didn't take uh take the victory last week but yeah you know i don't know it, it's it's really interesting <laughs> and i think that no. you know i think that the uh i guess what i'd like to see come of this more than anything is just people like trying to listen to one another i you know, I don't want to point fingers at anyone and point blame and you know, nothing has even happened yet. Uh, I mean, people feel alienated and disheartened by by um President elect Trump, but you know, let's like wait to really see what happens, I guess. And and if things happen differently than the way that we want things to happen, then I guess we move forward from there and try and change the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I no, I
2: know. Yeah. It, it's how, how do we deal with the fact that Hillary won by nearly two million popular votes,
1: yeah, I read that this morning,
2: and we're looking at that and just going, "Wow, where else do you elect someone, whether it's running for the mayor's office, you know city council person, congress, senate, uh even a referendum like legalizing marijuana if yeah the ba- if the ballot lost by one vote, then it would be thrown out um Right. The victor is always determined by the the number of popular votes, and here we have a clear victor by the people, and yet it doesn't count. 538 college electorates make the decision for us, and there's a lot yeah. of people who are really, really, really upset about that. And um, what do we say to those people who feel totally disenfranchised
1: by that?
2: It's almost like democracy doesn't exist now. That our votes don't even count.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's clear to me that the electoral college system is is antiquated. Um
2: it may have worked 200 but, years
1: ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, I personally I feel that um I'm, I don't know. I, America's just such a big place, right? I mean, I've I many of my like my best friend he lives in San Francisco and he he um he's very, very super liberal. Um he went to school at Johns Hopkins and lived in China for many years and he he's traveled extensively, but most of his travel has been in metropolitan areas and he's lived between uh D C and New York and now San Francisco. And you know, he's just shocked by this result and I have to say that I, I think that probably a lot of people living on the coast or living in, in blue states feel that way, but Being someone who's traveled a ton in the middle of the country, um, I know that it's a huge country and a lot of the, I mean, the way that people live and the way that people feel about the world is dramatically different between, you know, the middle of nowhere Idaho and, you know, Ballard in Seattle. And Mm -hmm. I think that that just speaks volumes to how big of a country America is and how diverse um of ideas we have here and diverse types of people and furthermore diverse ethnicities and, and socioeconomic you know situations for, for various different people and whatever. And I think in large part that's what makes America great in my opinion because I love the contrast between the middle of the country, and San Francisco versus, you know, the South versus New York City. I mean, they're all such unique places, and they all have something really, really unique to offer, and there's so many different ways to be an American and to feel truly American, and that's, like, to me, what's so so cool about it. So, more, I really want to, like, respect that, but at the same time, I guess I also there there's, you know, it's In a lot of ways, when I want to think about America as being a really progressive place, I actually feel like it's it's quite conservative. Like when you go into the middle and when you go into these uh, these other places outside of, you know, cities and and like some of the popular, you know, climbing areas, et cetera, um, it's quite conservative. And if you look at a lot of the laws that govern this place that we're in, including like the electoral college, there's really antiquated. And we are not nearly as progressive... And like forward thinking as some people might think i mean comparatively Mm -hmm. to most of the places in in europe where we go climbing and where we spend time i mean i mean it's great it's crazy their their farthest right-leaning person on the ballot might be what we would consider someone who's barely center in the u.s Mm -hmm. um and and the (laughs) and the rate yeah and the rate to which they turn over and change laws and and the way that they govern their society is changes with every generation as opposed mm-hmm. to you know somewhere like here where we hold on we grasp so tightly onto um constitutional and you know furthermore laws and 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 governing principles that are 200 years old and it's or 300 years old for that matter and, I don't know, I think it's kind of a shame. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it certain, really is. And I guess in a, in a really long, long roundabout answer to your question, um, yeah, it's a shame that that the Electoral College is still functioning. And and even furthermore, it's a shame that we deal with primaries the way that we do, between state to state and, and nationally. Um, I couldn't be more there either. It should be all at the same time.
2: Just so that there's yeah. one, you know, for example, California. I'm from California. Um, yeah. We feel like we don't even count. We're the sixth yeah. leading economic power in the world. Not United States. United States were number one, but in the world we're number six. And yeah. yeah. We're okay. we're dead. We're dead last in the primaries, and we're dead last. Well, except for Hawaii and all that. Um, yeah, We're nearly dead last when it comes to the election time and they always just throw us into the blue because they know it's blue. But our votes yeah. don't count. And it's just like on oh yeah. my God. It's like we, we are at the mercy of these people in the Midwest and the South and yes, I and we all understand that they have their difference of opinion, but they're the ones that decide the election and it's becoming more and more that way. I mean last time this happened was in two thousand when Al Gore lost.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. And
2: I think a lot of us have just gone, oh my God, this is ridiculous. We all remember what happened then.
1: <laughs> so yeah. I
2: think a lot of people are afraid of, you know, because George Bush, we all were scared of him. But he looks like yeah. a passive liberal compared to Donald Trump. <laughs>
1: totally. Totally. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've never, I never imagined, because, okay, when George Bush was in his two terms, I was, I don't remember my exact age, but, I was, you know, teenager moving into my 20s. And during that time, I was traveling a little bit internationally, and I just certainly developed an attitude about, like, you know, anti-national, it just like, screw America, I hate this, you know. You know, I wasn't that informed or anything, I just really didn't like George Bush and his policies and politics and whatever. And now, in, in retrospect, now that I'm older and I'm 31, and and I know a little bit more about politics, and I've I've been through, you know, two Barack Obama terms and et cetera, I'm like, man, I would vote for George Bush now, if I could, could over Donald Trump. (laughs) Like, like, for sure. I mean, and and I never would have dreamt saying that in my entire life, you know, but... Neither would
2: I. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: Enough of politics that I...
2: Really connected with you because, uh, dude, you you. When I look at you, what's been going on with you in the last number of years here that you've been climbing? You've been just on a tear. Holy shit, um, <laughs> uh, major <laughs> kudos, man. Seriously, when I, when I look you. at you, yeah, we'll realization. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, how does it feel to be a member of the very elite group of climb five fifteen?
1: Um, man. Um. It doesn't really feel any different, you know to be honest i don't i don't really i mean i really appreciate um the the um the kudos from you and and uh and that's awesome and and certainly that kind of thing is motivating i i really like you know respect from my community and from my peers is kind of what what uh i value more than anything else mhm um, but but that being said yeah i mean i i, I would much rather, you know, especially from from people, from kind of what I would consider the old school, you know, receiving respect and and admiration from them is is by far more valuable to me than having Instagram followers or anything like that. Um, I, you know, I don't, like, I, that being said, I don't really consider myself being all that elite. Well, maybe I used the wrong word there, just a, a very
2: small group <laughs> it's not a lot it's not like there's a lot of people who have climbed part 15
1: no yeah yeah no that's true um and yeah I'm really proud of that and I'm and I'm proud of um the work I put into my climbing and and you know sometimes some of those some of my ascents are are luck and some of them are just me trying my ass off um but I, I am really proud of that and and I think what's what's probably the coolest for me is especially certainly after climbing biography two and a half years ago is like uh it just opened my my world up so much there was opportunity for all these new roots you know whenever you break into a new grade Mm -hmm. suddenly there's areas there's roots there's dreams that like open to you that you never imagined could be possible before and that's a really really cool feeling i mean like you know climbing climbing biography and then thinking like I'm a a enormous history buff and for from, from the perspective of climbing and so Yeah, okay you know, immediately you know immediately thereafter being like, Oh man, like you know, there's this incredible route from from Alex Huber that that Ramon Julian added an extension to and Sierrana called La Rambla that, you know, I've known about for my whole life and I've watched these videos of Danny Andrada trying forever and whatever, like man, maybe I could try that, you know, and then And then having done that, and then again, having that feeling of like, oh, I've always heard of this area called Oleana, like I've never been there. There's some roots there that, you know, maybe I could work really hard and there might be enough opportunity for me to climb them. And it was just like, I think that process of of climbing a new grade is probably the coolest thing. Just suddenly you're like, oh, you know, there's an extra page in the guidebook for you, basically.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So was that a mental breakthrough or was that a physical breakthrough in terms of just hitting in a certain strength or was it just a mental thing where you just realized kind of like realization was that the moment when you realized after doing it that you actually could climb five fifteen.
1: Um, you know, it was definitely a physical breakthrough. Um, I had, I climbed my first, 14 uh, D in 2010. It was Tommy Caldwell's kryptonite and I had more or less plateaued. I had had a lot of success at that grade, but I had more or less plateaued, uh, for the next four years and I kinda of just decided in the end of twenty thirteen that I really wanted to try and climb something a little harder and and push myself a little more and I I I kind of adapted a new training program and new train mentality um, that really revolutionized my climbing and I and I think that it's fair to say that since that, which is now three years ago I've my first day of, like, actual training, I think, was Thanksgiving Day of 2013, and since that moment, my climbing has definitely changed just in general, and in the sense that I've become really interested in training, uh training scientifically and training systematically, and, um you know, I can pretty much, like, track the last three years of my climbing in terms of, like, you know, training times and then... And then times of performance and then training times and times of performance, et cetera, et cetera. Which is something I never wow. did before. I mostly wow. just climbed. Do you log it yeah. in a computer? Do you have a spreadsheet for that or uh, yeah, no, I have a I have a notebook um that I've recorded every training day and and um and it's awesome too. I'm I'm really diligent about, about making recordings and everything. And the cool thing about that is that I can look back and see tangible uh quantifiable progress over the last couple of years and furthermore like what I really like is for instance I, I'm leaving for Spain in about 10 days now I leave on Thanksgiving Day and mm-hmm. um, and I can look back and I can see I went to to Oleana my first trip to Oleana was last year and I left right after Halloween and I can look back and I can see quantifiably how strong I was and then I can try and set goals like you know based on my performance there like okay I want to be about at that level or, you know, my goals are going to require me to be a little bit stronger or, you know, somewhere in the same realm or whatever. And then I can shoot for those same exact kind of training goals before I leave. And whether or whether or not that's, that is like point A to point B exact science, it does give me a huge boost of confidence to be like, okay, on paper, I'm roughly the same. So, you know, I can imagine success on these certain routes or whatever, you know. and that, And that really helps me, I guess, go into the to the field or uh, to the crag or whatever and perform.
2: Yeah, I really love that mindset. Uh, tell us more about your training. You say it's really scientific. What are you doing specifically that's really giving you the, the greatest strength increases?
1: Um, well, I think just um, uh, it's, it's probably too much to talk about here, but I think that the basics is that for Many years I was under the understanding that you know I go to the crag, I climb on roots, I get pumped, and I fall off. okay, well, then I guess I should just go into the gym and basically climb and do volume until I wanna vomit, basically, you know just mm-hmm. I would go in and my and my quote unquote training was really just just climbing to failure day after day after day after day, and that did well for me for many years. Um, but there became a point where it was really clear to me that, uh, I needed to isolate, I needed to kind of eliminate variables if I was going to really improve my weaknesses. And, you know, it's like, I guess the, the, um, the analogy that I always use is like pro football players, it's not as though, or pro athletes in any realm, um, it's not as though they go out and just play football all the time to get better at playing football. I mean, they want to get stronger like let's say you're a linebacker you're going to want to get stronger in your legs right well practicing football is one way to do that but it might take forever and you can never really be sure which part of your body or your mind is failing first and so in order to really improve they need to isolate the exact strength that they're trying to improve and so you can't uh you can't be you can't succumb to all the random variables that could be affecting your performance instead they go into the gym and they do leg press or you know they do various leg. Like, i don't know exactly what what a linebacker would do but that's the exact same principles that i train with now where i actually do very little climbing when i'm training uh mostly what i do is i target certain areas of my body and again what areas. The women, variables most of the work i do is on my is on my hand strength um, finger strength and then, uh like, on just upper body kind of strength in general, shoulders and, and body tension and stuff like that. And so the idea is I'm doing a much more, like, weightlifting, fingerboarding, canvassing, things like this that, that target specific areas, and they eliminate, you know, the, you know, I could be falling in the gym because maybe my legs are tired because I went on a hike yesterday, or, you know, maybe mentally I'm over it, or maybe, you know, it's too hot and it's slippery or whatever. And so you remove all that stuff and you just go into the weight room and you basically attack the very the exact area that you want to improve and for me it made an enormous difference.
2: Hmm. How many times a week would you train?
1: Um, you know, 6 years ago if I was doing this, I'd probably train a lot more, but now I think I train I train every third day normally. So, mm-hmm. I normally have a training day and then uh a climbing day just to kind of keep some rock sense and and climbing around and and it's like like tone tone it way down on that day yeah yeah i mean you know uh invariably because i'm so tired from training that i can't Mm -hmm. like perform on that day but i might still go outside and do some pitches or you know do a long trad route or um go into the gym and just do some laps or whatever but nothing crazy and then on the third day i have like absolute rest, which is another change, another big change I made from, Mm -hmm. from, uh, three years ago. I used to run quite a bit. And so even on rest days, I would, you know, have this concept that, Oh, well, I'm using my legs. I'm not using my arms. So I'm resting. I'll just go on an eight mile run. And I completely cut that out. I don't, I don't do any running at all anymore, actually. But even on rest days, you know, I try and keep it to like, like maybe I go on a 45 minute, like very light hike. Or something, mm-hmm. but most rest days I just try and like just chill completely, and mm-hmm. so and that has that that, that like, also really seemed to help, yeah, so that gives you kind of like
2: two real good training days a week,
1: yeah, two good it's like two point three or whatever, you know, so yeah, so two good training days a week, and I've experimented with different with different um frequencies of training days, I've experimented with like day on day off day on day off and you know maybe one a week or whatever and this seems to be for me the perfect formula i mean i think that if i was probably 25 or 24 or something i could do day on day off day on day off mm-hmm. um but but i've noticed things um i've noticed you know a little more required time for rest than i used to need um you know, in the recent years so for me this is perfect every third day yeah, no, I've been finding the
2: same thing. I'll have a training day. Like, if I want to climb that weekend, um, I make yeah. sure that my last training day is either Tuesday or Wednesday so that I have a couple days totally. to recoup. Because otherwise, I'll get to the crack. And I'm melting off of everything. Cause I, I haven't even recovered from my workout.
1: Right, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing to me. I mean, I think that I to really recover, I need at least 48 hours. And most of the time I need more 72 mm-hmm. hours
2: to like really feel recovered. Interesting. So if you're going to do like a real hard stand, like the um, yeah. You, how many days rest will you give yourself before jumping on it? If you really want to crush it?
1: Um, well, like, like for instance, I fly to Oleana next Thursday and I plan to have two or three rest days before I even start climbing. And then, you know, for most of the trip, I'll probably do two days on, one day off. And then maybe once a week or once every 10 days, I'll take two days off. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the training volume or the training intensity is so much higher than actually climbing that Mm -hmm. I can deal with, with. And that's the other beauty of training, right, is that you're beating the shit out of yourself for a month or however long it is that you're training before your trip. And you get used to a certain level of intensity and volume. And most of the time actual climbing is, is lower intensity or lower volume. And so, so your your body's adapted to something and then, you know, you can you can deal with climbing two days on one day off and perform pretty well. Or at least that's my experience. Mm-hmm. Um but you, you know when I'm at the crag and I'm trying something hard like like La Rambla or whatever, um I would warm up slowly over the course of an hour or two and then try once or mate two times. I mean Maybe on a day where I've had extra rest beforehand and I'm going to rest afterwards, I would try three times. But, you know, most of these routes that I'm trying, the kind of route that I really love, is long, involved, and it's not the kind of thing that you can really just throw yourself at time after time after time, or else you're going you're gonna to ruin your you know following week of climbing.
2: Mm-hmm. And how do you, when you say warming up for an hour, what kind of routes will you do? Do you stretch and everything too?
1: Um, I don't do too much stretching. I do some stretching on like rest days. Mm-hmm. Um, on climbing days, I I mostly just like I would warm up for like when I was in Oleana last winter, and I climbed Papichulo and um, Power Inverter. Um, I think I was just warming up for those on there's like a twelve uh, B on the left side of the crag, and I'd maybe do it twice, and that's realistically all that I would do before before trying five fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, And you know it depends on the the characteristic of a route too. If it's really short and bouldery, then you know anyone who's done who's done a proper campus board session or a proper hangboard session or whatever knows that like warming up isn't just about preventing injury. It's literally you're going to perform better. Like especially in something powerful like like in snappy like campusing. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, if I had a really short bouldery route that was really like powerful, I would, I would work much. I would have to do harder moves in order to get warmed up for it. Um, mm-hmm. But if it's something really long and stamina based, then I could, you know, take two kind of slow laps on a 100 foot, 512, and, and feel pretty warmed up for a for a good try. And, and how much
2: rest would you give yourself after doing those two routes?
1: Probably an hour. That's normally what mm-hmm. I do outside, 45 minutes mm-hmm. to an hour. Um, you know, so rest, do my two warm-ups, like, pretty quickly, not necessarily in rapid succession, but, like, one after the other. And then, uh, yeah, rest about an hour, sometimes up to an hour and 15 minutes if I'm feeling extra tired. But And, and then that's we, about what I would rest in between tries, too. On, mm-hmm. If I was going to try two or three times, I'd rest about an hour. Will you eat something uh, in between? Um, you know, I, I eat very little while I'm at the crag. Um, I normally have like a really rad breakfast, maybe bigger than normal. And then I mostly, uh, like, like eggs and vegetables and maybe some toast or, you know, more like a, like I would, I would have a, Maybe, I know a lot of climbers who would go light on breakfast, like yogurt or something like that, or just like two hard boiled eggs, but mm-hmm. I'd prefer to go a little bigger on breakfast and then, and then, yeah, mostly like drink water at the crack and have some fruit. Um, but I don't, you know, if I'm hungry, of course, or if I feel like shaky or whatever, I'll definitely eat. But, um, more often than not, I just kind of like enjoy the crag. And, you know, on these days when I'm trying something really hard, I'm not there for very long. It's not the same as if you're going somewhere and you're just kind of playing around and trying out routes. Then you might Mm -hmm. be in the crag from 9 a.m. until 6, you know. But for Mm -hmm. me, you know, like I I plan to be, like when I'm in Oleana this next month, I plan to go to the crag around noon and I'll probably be back by 5.
2: So, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, you don't necessarily need like a huge meal in there. Um, No, you don't.
2: It's just gonna yeah. be extra weight to carry too, and your body's gonna be digesting the food, and your muscles are taking you know taking energy away from your muscles too,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, um, so yeah, just come to the crag really well fueled and then and then go back home and have a big dinner <laughs> so, so do you have any projects in mind that you plan on doing, are you looking like at Ladorador or anything yeah. like that? <laughs> no no that's well above my pay grade um <laughs> there's uh, you know it's, ama- it's amazing when you think about it you know,
2: climbers who are just getting into the sport they have a hard time understanding the concept of the, you know 12 a b c whatever um right you know and when it gets into you know the, the 14s and 15s here the difference between 15 a and 15 c is can be yeah. giant
1: yeah, I mean in a lot of cases that can literally be the difference between 15A to anchors versus 15A to a good rest to another 15A. <laughs> literally yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I mean, cha- uh Adam Andra's change, I believe he he called 14D to a bad rest to 14D 15A. So that's, you know, a significant increase in difficulty from from you know, yeah, fifteen A or fifteen B even. So um so yeah, I definitely know Dora Dora in my future. There's a couple of routes there I'm really interested to try. I'm gonna um kinda hold back on on figuring out exactly what it's gonna be until I have an opportunity to try them. Mm-hmm. Ideally I would have tried something last year and had a little bit that been a little bit more informed about you know how to train and how to prepare even just mentally for it, but um all the routes I, I have left on my list there, I haven't tried yet. So, uh, I'll just kind of go and, and check some things out. And, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty short climber. So, uh, especially in the 515 range, I don't need to make anything, like, more hard than it needs to be. Um, so, I, I – like, if a route has exceedingly reachy moves on it, I'll definitely move on in that grade range for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. something like 14A or B or something, I might – stick with it and try and like figure something out but so yeah I mean there's plenty of hard routes there it's one of the hardest cliffs in the world so I'm sure I won't have a hard time finding something cool to try
2: yeah no kidding man and uh, you know speaking of mindset is there a particular technique you use to get yourself in the zone
1: um you know I think that I just try and reflect back on the energy that I've put into my training or, or the ways that I feel I've prepared that all, that helps me build confidence for the route. But also I think it helps me feel accountable to myself. Um, you know, it's, I think a lot of us struggle with being intimidated. I've certainly been around a lot of climbers that are this way that are strong well beyond their resume, but when they arrive at the crag, you know, I mean, it's scary to try something that is hard. It's um, mm-hmm. not only because because it's scary, like, because clips might be far apart, and maybe you're going to take a huge fall, and you don't know the terrain you're moving into, and et cetera, et cetera, but also because, I mean, let's say that, that 12D is your limit, and it's so easy for you to go to the crag and do make sure you're going to get to the top of a 12a or 12b maybe every single day but um to embark on the journey of the unknown i mean to try a 13a or a 12d for you might mean repeat failure it might mean you never do it and that is that's a scary thought and um and i think that that what helps me feel accountable is like just reflecting back on all the days that i spent preparing in the gym and really pushing myself and um, all the moments that I felt like dedicated before the route even, before I even saw the route, and kind of all the moments that I, that I pushed myself and just, yeah, and just uh, gave everything I had to prepare. Suddenly in the moment, you know, you're, you're like, at least for me, I feel like I can't let that person down like me three weeks ago, you know, going to the bitter death in the weight room or whatever like that. I want to make that person proud. I want to make like that effort. I want to make that effort fruitful. And I don't want to just like kind of relegate myself to climbing something that I know is easy, that I know I'll succeed at. Right on. That's a great attitude, man.
2: I mean, also what really impresses me is your list of flashes and on sites. Um, Oh, to me,
1: thanks. Yeah,
2: Yeah. to me, I mean, it's it's super cool that people are uh, sending these 515s and uh, it's just major kudos. I'm just at awe. Um, but maybe because my, of my soloing background, I, I know just what kind of a mindset you got to get yourself into to on-site consistently at such a high level that you've been doing. How do you do that? I mean, is there... Do you walk up to a round you just know that that's your climbing style or what's your technique?
1: Um, well, I guess there's two main techniques that have proved fruitful for me in the realm of like first try climbing. And one is having absolutely no expectations and furthermore as little information as possible, even to the extent of not knowing the grade of a route. And Mm -hmm. I think that you just remove all pressure, expectations, and I mean, I actually, I've spoken to several people. Um I spoke to Mike Anderson, who I've worked with um first in training, Mike and Mark Anderson. I've worked with them for training stuff in the past, and I spoke to Mark Anderson just a couple nights ago, and the hardest onside of his life, he onsited a 13D in Austria this summer, and he attributes a lot of it to the fact that he thought it was 13D. <laughs> I mean, he was just, he was just uninformed, and so... <laughs> You know, I think that, you know, if I was going to step, if I was ever going to do, like, some crazy hard on-site, it could be in a situation where I'm just misinformed. Someone tells me, oh, you know, this is this grade, and I'm thinking, oh, I can do that. And then when you're on route, you're like, you know, this is really hard, but I'm sure I'm just screwing it up or something. Or, you know, I'm sure that this is so hard, this must be the crux, because this is this is great at this and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you just kind of keep having that emotion until you get to the top and then you lower down and you look in the guidebook and you realize you were wrong. Um, <laughs> you were yeah. on the other route. <laughs> so, I, so yeah, exactly. So I think that that's maybe one, that's one way <laughs> to to have success, which, you know, is it's pretty, pretty difficult to um, generate. But then the other way is I, I mean, all of my best, like both of the times that I've that I've slashed 14b has been um, after learning I I intentionally wait I guess until I feel like I've learned the style of the crag really well so maybe climbing there for some weeks
2: and Mm -hmm. ideally
1: you know I can watch a variety of people with different sizes try a route for the first time Um, because you know the difference between beta for someone who's 5 foot 4 and 6 foot can be dramatically different and it's nice to know both, you know. It's not only nice to know what might work better for my size, but it's also nice to know, like, oh, well, the bigger dude is probably going to go do a bigger move between two good holds. So, like, maybe the maybe in this crux section where he's skipping, okay, maybe these holds are really bad, and the hold that he's going to or she is going to is, um, you know, much, much better, et cetera. Um, and then I guess the other thing is just, like, try, I. you have to kind of find this boundary between and I think it's similar, I've done a little bit of soloing but not a ton you have to find this boundary between taking it really seriously and being well prepared but also just like being playful and having fun um, mm-hmm. in the same way that like when I've soloed things that are a little harder or even easier if you make every move like the consequence of death then you're It's gonna, you're gonna be completely derailed with adrenaline, with fear, and it's gonna change the way that you climb because Mm -hmm. you know we don't normally climb with that kind of risk, you know, at stake. And Mm -hmm. your best climbing is probably when you're more playful and just kind of floating. And I feel the same way about trying a route uh, for the first try or whatever. Um, It's that sense of like okay, this is something that I really, really want. And, you know, before you leave, kind of digest the idea of going to the death. I mean, I'm going to try. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to fall with upward momentum. I'm going to fall trying my, my hardest. But at the same time, also just like, you know, I'm just a climber, and I'm going to climb up this wall and kind of play around and, and, you know, do the best I can, but if I fall, who cares kind of thing, you know. Um, and that's the a sale, really hard sale line. Of via that's a really hard line to walk. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, I've always tried to embrace
2: that. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, they, they get so caught up in the grades is that yeah. they, beat them, they beat themselves up. Um, yeah. they, see a friend, they see a friend do it, and they think they, they should be doing it. If they don't do it, then they feel like a failure. And I keep telling friends, like, just get stay with what got you into climbing in the first place. Fall in love yeah. with it. Just just. just Enjoy being out there with your friends and the environment. That's what the outdoors and and just doing the moves. And if you fail, it's not failure. Failure is when you give up. So, yeah. And I, I love that spirit you have, man. It's just beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um,
1: thanks. Thanks.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, what words of inspiration you'd like to share with a true black community?
1: Um. To the climbing community? Sorry, I didn't hear yeah. you there very well. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I guess I just, uh, I think that what stands out to me and what's, like, beautiful about climbing is, I think more than anything for me, it's, like, the the community that I interact with. Because we all want to feel like we're part of a community, right? And And mm-hmm. I really, I so strongly feel that way about climbing. I mean... I can walk into a random gym in the middle of nowhere and I can have friends in 10 minutes, even if we don't speak the same language Mm -hmm. and I can go up to the crag and, and, you know, share a guidebook and kind of talk about, you know, just, just being there together and sharing this passion with other people is enough to kind of bridge the gap and, and create friends. And that's so rare to climbing. And I, and I really, think that it's such a cool opportunity that we all have to to meet people and to be part of this community and it feels good I mean that's like innately human right we want to be like part of a part of a tribe and Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really proud to be a a part of the climbing tribe Um, and I think that, that I guess I would just really encourage people to take advantage of that there's a lot of people in this world who yearn for friendship and who are you know despite the fact that they may be may have old friends and even be married and etc. they still can't find a way to just like connect with people day to day. And and that's something that as climbers we have like so easily to us. And and it's something that maybe we forget about. So, um, so yeah, I think that's like one of my favorite, favorite parts about climbing. And I guess I hope that inspires people to, to just like have a random conversation at the crag or whatever and get some laughs with somebody around the campfire or whatever it might be. But Um, that's cool and it's really unique and I think that most people that just start as a climber uh, they realize that pretty quickly and it's one of the driving factors that keeps them keeps them here and and keeps them climbing for a really long time so um, I certainly even after 12 years uh, 12 and a half years of climbing I certainly still really really enjoy that aspect of it well
2: yeah I couldn't agree with you more
1: Jonathan I've been climbing for almost
2: 40 years now (laughs) awesome cool man yeah and um, it is the one thing that has kept me in the sport is the tribe. If it wasn't for the tribe and the, our yeah. community, um, I probably would have dropped it and gone on to some other sport. I mean, even though I did do other sports, um, but climbing has always made me feel like I was at home when I'm on climbers. That's,
1: that's great, man. And that's such yeah. a good feeling, right? That's like a feeling you yeah. like all want. So
2: It's, it's the best, uh-huh. man. And, uh, you know, as, you know, We want to thank you for being such a shining example to all of us and to all the climbers out there who are getting into the sport. Um, You you are just such a great ambassador, man. Thank you.
1: Thanks for the support, Dan. I really appreciate it, dude. You got it, Jonathan.
2: Take care of yourself now.
1: Thanks, man. Have a good one. You
2: too. (laughs)
0: Bye-bye. Well, I don't know about you, but I just thought Jonathan Seagulls just knocked it completely out of the park. Not only is this guy just super cool and just his philosophical views on the world and life in general, but man, I mean, he has shared with us some of his training secrets and his methods of how he's actually gotten to where he's gotten to. I mean, you don't get to where you're climbing 515 by doing nothing. You know, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, it's just luck. It's just, you know, he's just gifted and all that. There's certain truth to that, but really when you really get down to it it's dedicated hardcore commitment i mean jonathan secrets was stuck mid- like many climbers get stuck you know it doesn't matter what level you're at i mean you could be climbing 510s 511s and you're stuck there and you're trying to figure out how they get you to the 512s but jonathan he was stuck in the 14 cd range and he was like looking at the 515s and wondering if he would ever get there and he took the gamble and he actually committed himself to doing three months of just nothing but training, dedicated training, where, you know, train three times a week, sleep, eat, repeat, just keep doing it over and over and over. And at the end of those three months, guess what happened? He had a major breakthrough. He was actually able to climb biography. Now, I'm not saying that if you go out and train and do all that and do everything that he's done, that you're going to be climbing biography. But, you know, if you're stuck in the 510, 511 range and you want to be able to climb a 512, guess what? This is one of the ways that you can get so you can climb it. And the other one is, remember our tribe. Climbing, you know, it doesn't matter where you go. You, you run into climbers, it doesn't matter if they even speak the same language, or they, if they look the same as you, they could be completely different than you in every shape and form, different society, different culture, different everything, but we share that same common thread we love to climb. We love being outdoors. We love nature. And that binds us together. And I don't know about you, but for me, that is what climbing is all about. So when you think about Jonathan Secrets, think about that. Think about how he's really kind of in many ways just inspired all of us to be the best that we can be. And maybe, just maybe, we can be just that. Until next week, my friends, this is Dan Goodwin with Total Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.